0: Welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection of Faith and Reason. I'm Doug Keck here at the Mothership in Irondale, Alabama, where Mother Angelica began it all. Back in 1981, Your questions are very important to us on this program. So if you make sure you send them to us at Spitzer's Universe at ew10.com and check out all of Father Spitzer's websites. MAGIS Center, The Credible Catholic and Purposeful Universe as well and recommend them to your friends and be sure to check out our EWTN all new and improved on-demand page and our YouTube channel as well where you'll find not only Father Spitzer's universe but you can explore uh, a whole plethora of other programs, our live shows that are all going to be there including the great other Jesuit Father Mitch Paqua, the name that should not be mentioned here on this program but we will anyway. So uh, our topic today is what are the causes of possession and why does God allow it? That's a question everybody has. And, of course, that's from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. It's, it's in our catalog. I'm assuming you already have it. If not, you should get his new book. It's there as well. And our book of the month for February, Spiritual Excellence, The Path to Happiness, Holiness in Heaven by Deacon Richard Eason. I did a bookmark with him. Recently, he's a very nice man, and with that being said, again, another nice man. This one on the West Coast is our own Father Spitzer. How are you doing? I'm doing
1: great, Doug. I know you are, too. So, That's uh, right. Uh, <laughs> well, anytime we get to talk, well, <clears throat> uh, spend
0: an hour together, it's always fun. So if you'd like to kick things off with a prayer, that'd be great.
1: <coughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing of this ministry, we ask you to send uh, your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And Mary's seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good. You know, Father, we were talking last
0: week uh, in Christ versus Satan in our daily lives about not communicating with even good spirits. But, you know, I just found an article from Catholic Word Report that I think somehow you had a mind meld with uh, Thomas (laughs) M. Durand. So I don't know if that counts for the same thing. Uh, Having to do with environmentalism, I thought it was interesting. He, He talks about the idea that practical atheism Increasingly promotes policies with the effect that the minutest environmental impact is more consequential than human needs. Faith and reason hold that human needs should take priority over modest environmental impacts. Practical atheism discounts technology advancements, which you were talking about, when oh, considering oh, yeah. the big impact on, mm-hmm. of infrastructure projects to meet especially diverse water needs. He talks about what you talked about as well. Yeah. Faith and reason adherents know better than to put blind faith in technology while recognizing we can now treat and convey ocean water, as you were talking about, uh, and f- uh, to, pat- to parch fire-stricken communities with modest impact on the environment. So what he's really trying to get to is that we tend to have this two-track out there, and there's a third way, I guess, via media, which is to say most public voices, especially the loudest voices, keep hammering at a disingenuous two-track narrative, a contest between the caring science-affirming, that's one group, and the greedy science deniers, the other group, a narrative that doesn't square with the evidence. Why wouldn't believers and their leaders pay greater heed to a faith and reason
1: approach to planet earth that's exactly what you were talking about right absolutely and I couldn't agree with him more so uh, great minds think alike just kidding but uh, no, I'm glad that uh, he does have that because again there are far more errors of omission than commission and um, uh, definitely leaving the technology part of the equation out of it is a Right. Is um, a, a very bad thing indeed and we also have to measure impacts right. um, you know a, a great human impact versus a modest environmental impact right. you know clearly the great human impact has to be considered uh, to be a higher priority than the modest uh, right. environmental one etc. I think these are all right, good, right. good well as suggestion. you were saying we, we there's kind of this in a
0: sense a false dichotomy that's set up in this kind yeah. of man It's where it's either or you're either YOU DON'T CARE ABOUT THE ENVIRONMENT OR YOU CARE INCREDIBLY ABOUT THE ENVIRONMENT RATHER THAN SAYING, WELL, YOU CAN MODERATE BOTH OF THOSE. ISN'T THAT THE GREAT INSIDE OF CATHOLICISM?
1: IT'S NOT EITHER OR, IT'S ALWAYS Mm -hmm. BOTH AND? YEP. Uh, I I THINK IT'S, uh, WE'VE ALWAYS BEEN uh, THE BOTH AND. WE'VE ALWAYS BEEN. The faith and reason we've mm-hmm. always been the uh, you know deference uh, to um, uh, natural causation and the deference to supernatural causation all at the same time. We're uh, we are not uh, an either or group. Another <laughs>
0: environmental issues out there has to do with the socialization of especially people in Generation Z. This is an article that showed up recently in the Washington mm-hmm. Times uh, from a study. Uh, about members of Generation Z, people between 13 and 25 are more socially disconnected but less likely to find solace in faith, the new survey says. And it's a springtime research institute found that 63% of respondents report being quote-unquote unsettled, uncomfortable, or stressed over uncertainties about their lives, while 19% say involvement with the faith community helped them cope. It goes on to say that GEN Z MEMBERS ARE MORE LIKELY TO REPORT OVERALL HAPPINESS IF EITHER THEY'RE FLOURISHING A LOT OR SOMEWHAT FLOURISHING IN THEIR RELIGIOUS LIFE. ONLY 44% OF SAY THEY'RE NOT FLOURISHING REPORT SUCH HAPPINESS. SO YOU CAN SEE THEY'RE NOT THAT CONNECTED, BUT THE ONES THAT ARE ACTUALLY HAPPY ARE THE ONES THAT WERE CONNECTED. GOES ON TO SAY RESPONDENTS SAID SHARED VALUES SUCH AS IMMIGRATION RIGHTS, INCOME INEQUALITY, LGBTQ INCLUSION, and support for Black Lives Matter, this is probably a little dated, are more important in choosing religious affiliation than quote-unquote shared beliefs, also known as religious tenets or doctrine. And it goes on to say, what drives teens and young adults away, he said, is the ultimatum of believe everything we believe or you can't join us that some established religious groups have? What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, well, I think there um, uh, is a lot of sense to that. The first thing is... Overall, this would be not just Gen Zers, but Gen Xers and, you know, um, millennials, et cetera. If you look straight across the entire religious landscape, uh, there is a high correlation between religion and happiness. Mm -hmm. There is a very high correlation between non-religious affiliation and increased depression, anxiety, suicide, suicidal ideation, familial tension and substance abuse. So we know that religion is the most powerful coping Um, uh, um, aspect uh, that we have. I mean, it's better, honestly, than therapy. I mean, uh, um, I I think uh, religion has been shown in, you know, survey after survey, study after study has been shown to be a very, very a powerful coping mechanism, and it's not because religion has something directly to say about perhaps a stress that a person feels in school or a young person feels in school, or a stress that a Gen Zer may feel in the social media area or whatever. What religion does is it gives an overall sense of hope, an overall sense of um, absolute or ultimate meaning in life, an overall sense of dignity that transcends any particular comment, uh, negative or uh, or positive, that a person may make on the playground, etc. And and so the idea um, is that religion does uh, ground us in something higher than ourselves and opens the door to a grace that many young people, because you can't feel the grace as it's pouring into you, what happens, though, is with God's grace coming into our hearts, what it does give us is not only that sense of meaning, uh, that sense of dignity, but it relieves us of what I have uh, previously called uh, cosmic emptiness, loneliness, alienation, dread, and guilt. So these basic emotions, when we're disconnected from God, disconnected, Disconnected from absolute meaning or ultimate meaning, disconnected from ultimate dignity, etc. When we are disconnected from God, we are alienated mm-hmm. not only from God, we're alienated from ourselves, alienated from others, and alienated from our social context in general. That's what's producing the emptiness, the alienation, the loneliness, the dread, and the guilt. Mm-hmm. So the idea then is uh, to bring religion, it's not just a coping tool. It it, it it certainly does help people to cope but it's because god's bringing that connectedness into our lives we may not feel it but he's bringing ultimate meaning into our lives we may not feel it but he's bringing ultimate foundation into our lives we may not feel it but he's bringing the eternal context and the hope that comes from the eternal uh, context uh, into our lives we may not feel it but he's certainly bringing on a sense of dignity a sense of the import of not not only of our personhood, but the personhood of every other uniquely good and lovable, mysterious, transcendent being mm-hmm. into our lives. And because you know we might not feel it, young people think, well, maybe it's it's not there. I don't feel it. But on the other hand, if you look at the effects, as St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us again and again and again, if you look at what's happening in your life. Notice that the more you're praying, the more you take mass seriously, the more you take your religious and moral um, uh, teachings uh, you know, seriously, the more uh, you uh, feel that sense of dignity, of ultimate meaning, of ultimate context, of ultimate foundation, et cetera. It starts coming into your lives and the less you feel cosmic emptiness, alienation, loneliness, dread, and guilt. So uh, essentially, um, this is not surprising that Gen Z's should feel this because Mm -hmm. everybody, uh, you know, experiences this. And by the way, these are not my survey and study results. This is the American Psychiatric Association and a bunch of studies that have been done by universities. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, Duke University being foremost among them. So the, uh, you know, my my point is pretty clear. I'm not surprised at ANY OF THESE FINDINGS, I THINK uh, IT'S VERY CLEAR. NOW, I DO THINK AT THE END, YOU KNOW, YOU SAY, WELL, uh, WE HAVE A LOT OF BONDING OVER SOME SOCIAL ISSUES, right. um, and uh, th- BUT THAT BONDING, OBVIOUSLY, IS NOT PRODUCING THE COPING uh, um, uh, MECHANISM. Uh, there's something wrong with the, the bonding that just says, well, we have a, a bond with environmental issues and LGBTQ. Okay, you have a bond there, but is it the kind of bond that gives uh, ultimate meaning, ultimate dignity, eternal uh, um, hope, and, and and is it the kind of thing that brings you closer, to, close, closer and closer together on an interpersonal level with another uh, uniquely good and lovable uh, human being? Is it the kind of thing that ultimately, in the end, It's going to get rid of the emptiness, the alienation, the loneliness, and the guilt. And obviously the survey is saying, no, Mm -hmm. religion itself is what does it, not specific ethical issues. So I agree with that Mm -hmm. as well. And the third thing uh, that I think is uh, very clear, too, is that um, at the end of the day, um, what matters is not just what I think or believe. It's what I'm doing that matters. So if I'm actually going to Mass, the contact with God is there. The grace is coming into my life. The meaning is now flooding me in my conscious and subconscious mind. The context, the foundation, the the dignity and the hope and the substance of things hoped for, all of these things are flowing into my heart. Even if I do not feel them, even if I just notice these things by their effects in my life, by their effects in my psyche, nevertheless, those things eventually modulate the emptiness, the alienation, the loneliness. And that, I think, is what, why grace why religion itself is so much more powerful than merely a bonding over a specific ethical issue. You really have to have a bonding with God. And also, don't you need need the ability
0: and an anchor? You need something that is unchangeable that you can count on if if your belief system becomes uh, the fashion of the day and is totally in transition all the time, then you have the same Mm -hmm. lack OF
1: SOLIDITY, THAT ANCHOR THAT YOU CAN COUNT ON, RIGHT? YEAH, Uh, FAD ISSUES ARE VERY DIFFERENT FROM BASIC MORAL ISSUES. Mm -hmm. BASIC MORAL ISSUES DON'T CHANGE OVER THE COURSE OF TIME people don't get a sudden insight one day and go, wow, how did I not know stealing was so good? Mm-hmm. How did I not know that killing an innocent was uh, you know, so good? H- uh, how did I know that, that um, you know, adultery was uh, so good, et cetera, et cetera? You don't come up with these great insights that mm-hmm. say adultery's good, stealing good, killing good, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, over the course of time, it just remains constant, as C.S. Lewis says. Mm-hmm. But there's all kinds of fad issues and up and down they go over the course of time through the cycles. And that's, you know, the, the, that's not the substance of things hoped for. Uh, that basically is just uh, uh, incidental. So anyway, I just leave it, um, you know, at, at that. Right. And, and, um, but it's pretty clear that this is, these findings are very typical and not only apply to Gen Z's, but across the board, right. religion is good, Prayer is good, mass is good, et cetera. It's going to be exceedingly good, not only for your spiritual life, though certainly that, but also your emotional life, your um, uh, relational life, and even for your marriages, right? What is the highest predictor of a successful marriage? The practice of religion. So, um, uh, what can I say? I mean, the statistics prove this, and uh, this new book that's coming out will uh, give you all the studies you need and more. Very good. I also noticed there's an interesting uh, point that this uh,
0: particular survey makes. It said that grown-ups have never been more important than they are right now as a result of younger people's loss of trust in traditional institutions. The importance of having a trusted relation with an adult in your life that is the thing that guides young people's decisions, and parents still remain incredibly influential, the most influential source of a young person's religious life.
1: That's right. And there are very good uh, polls that say if the father is actually going to church and practicing religion, that is the biggest guarantee uh, that you're going to get of the child uh, who uh, will probably go to church, follow the father's example. That's the biggest influencer. The combined father and mother going to church is of course even better than just the father. Uh, If the father is missing though, that can really bring down the, um, uh, the percentage of uh, uh, kids who will follow the example. But if the father and the mother are going to church on a regular basis, uh, that's almost a guarantee. In other words, um, they're not just do what I say but not what I do, but if mm-hmm. they're doing, uh, you know, they're walking the, the talk and walking the walk, as people say, if that's the case, you've got a very, very high percentage um, of kids will follow their parents' example. And, and uh, some of the kids, as I've said before, the, you do have to provide some additional things. Uh, you do need to give uh, kids uh, who are in what I call the analytical camp. Um, you know, there's the action-oriented kids, there's the affectively-oriented mm-hmm. kids, but the analytically-oriented kids need their evidence for God from science and philosophy. And that is out there. So if the parents complement um, their church attendance and the high priority of religion in their life, and give the analytical uh, kid um, the evidence from science, uh, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. from reason that they need. Uh, and by the way, you can get that on crediblecatholic.com, crediblecatholic.com, one of Spitzer's old websites. There, you can get all the evidence you want for that uh, child. Um, and I'm telling you, you, that combination is almost a certainty that the child will um, uh, actually choose the parent's um, uh, religious commitment because it's right. backed up by reason uh, in the end, and uh, it's a very, very right. good um, yeah. and uh, predictor And they know And, the they're, and they're, they're
0: watching you and observing you much more than you realize. With that being said, we're going to take a break. Absolutely true much more ahead with father spitzer some more of your questions coming up and then our topics stay with us back and so are you here in father spitzer's universe i'm doug keck let's turn to father spitzer get one more article in before your questions Uh, Mm -hmm. this one uh, got picked up from a newsletter i just picked up uh, called the number of scottish cannabis users being hospitalized with psychiatric issues has increased by 74 percent since 2016 when the drug was semi-decriminalized by the police in Scotland. This person goes on, we're still in the grip of this really worrying narrative that cannabis is about peace and love and opening your eye with no harm and they made the point that the uh, person who's concerned about this that that needs to be uh, reviewed and uh, there's a report here it was published on a peer-reviewed journal of clinical psychology by The Telegraph suggesting that adolescents who consume even small quantities of cannabis may be increasing their chances of developing schizophrenia six-fold. Uh, Both high and low frequency marijuana usage were associated with a significantly increased risk of schizophrenia according to this uh, researcher. It goes on to say, and and, and as an aside, in America the Harvard Medical School has also revealed recently that 78% of psychosis patients aged between 16 and 35 that they've studied have used cannabis or marijuana and mclean hospital in massachusetts meanwhile said that two and a half times more people are being admitted for cannabis related psychosis in parts of areas where cannabis has been legalized
1: Yep, i'm not surprised by that either uh, you know i go back to the generation where uh... uh marijuana was frequently used um, both uh... in uh... Uh, high school students uh, and of course much more uh, in college students and I can see the long-term effects uh, with respect to you know intellectual ability Mm -hmm. uh, in some of the people I know who really took those drugs um, a lot and um, so that doesn't come as a surprise but the psychosis uh, aspect of course Mm -hmm. That is bound to come up now that it's legalized, and the frequency of use, uh, you know, would be much more during the day, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that uh, sometimes that, even the, the strength
0: of what's available is greater than maybe what used to be gotten on the street. Oh yeah, I'm sure that it is.
1: Yeah, because of course the uh, the more you can uh, take the hallucinogenic aspects, or you mm-hmm. can take the uh, uh, the um, uh... let's just say the mind altering aspects of marijuana mm-hmm. uh... you can uh, probably find lines uh... or plants that uh... are more um, uh... you know capable of producing those mm-hmm. effects and uh... that'll help sell your product uh... in a store and so i'm sure that uh... uh people are consuming much more of those uh... uh... you know mind altering right. uh, uh, chemicals And why wouldn't mind-altering chemicals start altering the mind in almost a permanent way? Uh, Why would it just be that it it just be for a temporary state? That's an assumption we never tested and certainly was never proved. And it looks like it's going in the reverse, uh, that mind-altering drugs do have permanent effects. And the higher and more frequently, uh, the higher the dose, the more frequent the, the, the dosing Uh, probably the more likelihood of uh, getting psychosis or, um, uh, you know, even schizophrenia, um, you know, as a result. So uh, I'm not surprised. I I mean, I'm not a doctor. I haven't seen the tests, but these surveys look pretty uh, reliable to me. Right. And as you can see, it's not just, uh, you know,
0: restricted to one country or another and one perspective. Yeah, it's interesting too because, as you know, and you see with almost every form of quote-unquote addiction or use like this, in order to get the same high, whatever that is, you have to usually increase the amount, yep. and that's where you yeah, you, that's you, certainly the case know. with alcohol too, right? Mm-hmm, exactly, mm-hmm. and pornography or any of those things like yeah, that. absolutely, to get harder absolutely. or weirder or stranger uh, yeah. for the person to have the same result. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's some uh, yep. uh, questions from people who wrote to us. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, my daughter-in-law is an atheist and humanist. She said to me that because of her beliefs, she'll probably end up in hell. I don't know how to respond. What should I have said to her? And this is Cheryl. But I couldn't figure out what this question was, is if she doesn't believe in God, why does she well, think there's a hell? How she believe in
1: hell? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, what that's a little just confusing. Just going to ask. Right. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like her atheism is intellectual. Right. Uh, You know, just listening to that, it sounds like it's a bit of rebellion Mm -hmm. uh, to me, which is a different sort of atheism. I mean, there's, there's like, I call them the four categories of atheism. You do have people who have intellectual problems, but those problems in an open in an open person who doesn't have any motives. If you give them evidence for God from science, evidence for a soul from science, evidence for Jesus even from historicity and science. If you give them sufficient evidence, uh, you can alleviate um, and undermine uh, the you know their atheistic. Belief and remember atheism is just as much of belief as theism, right? right? You just believe in the non-existence of God Um, And so if you give them evidence to the contrary you can bring a lot of them around And I think that's why today, you know overall among scientists You see 51% of them are believers in God, but if you look at the young scientists who are under 40 Uh, years old, that 66 percent of them believe in God. Well, why is that increasing? Mm -hmm. Because the evidence for God from science, the evidence uh, for a soul that will survive bodily death from science, etc., is increasing with each passing day. And, you know, they're not, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, stupid. They're reading these things and they're incorporating it into their overall belief system. But there are three other reasons why people oftentimes are, are atheists. A, a second reason is uh, what I would call the suffering problem. And this oftentimes is not intellectual. It's very emotional. A person sees somebody suffering and goes, why? Why would God allow this? The problem if we can uh, you know, meet with these people and, and tell them, look, life is not about just the here and the now. Uh, you know, We're called to eternal life. And, you know, suffering can have profoundly good impacts on our eternal life, on our purification in love, in our, um, you know, getting out of very superficial lifestyles and and trying to get into very contributive lifestyles, transcendent lifestyles, very moral lifestyles, etc. And, and, you know, suffering has tremendously good, um, you know, capacity to... Help with the conversion process to mm-hmm. turn our lives around, et cetera. So if we can start helping people to bring that eternal context, you know, I, I use near-death experience mm-hmm. uh, studies just to introduce uh, the, uh, you know, the idea of eternal life, and That's then right. ta- uh, correlate it with Jesus's teachings on this, and then say to them, hey, you got to look at suffering like Jesus. Why did he come and suffer with us? What was he trying to do? What was his purpose and point, uh, why didn't He just get a rid of suffering? Why did He instead come and suffer with us? And trying to talk about, oh, maybe there's something good in suffering, Something. maybe there's something grace-filled in suffering. And I kind of conclude with Paul's statement in um, you know, 2 Corinthians 12, you know, uh, I was given a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan, to beat right. me, to keep me from getting proud. I asked three times that the Lord, right, over and over and over again, that the Lord would remove this, but he saw fit not to, then I discovered that in my weakness. weakness. Weakness is my strength. When I grow weaker, Christ grows stronger in me. That makes all the difference. So as I begin to take Christ more and more into me, that's obviously good for my salvation, obviously good for my emotional health, obviously good for my relationship with others, obviously good for my moral and ethical health. This is not a bad deal. Suffering is not a bad deal. So that's the second major motive uh, for um, uh, atheism. But I think if people can just start looking at the good side of what I call the formula, suffering plus faith equals salvation. Suffering without faith, ooh, man, that is tough. It turns you in on yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you have suffering through the eyes of, of, of faith, especially Christian faith, it moves into salvation in so many different ways that I was just talking about. There's a third motive, though, um, for um Um, uh, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. atheism, and that motive concerns, um, I don't want to be responsible to a moral agency outside of myself. Now, here's where your daughter may be involved in some way. Uh, Maybe your daughter is thinking to herself, I'm just not going to follow these Christian teachings. Um, And by the way, like I said, I have this new book coming out that correlates Mm -hmm. uh, following Christian teaching with um, very good emotional health. Uh, Etc. And 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 so we can take a look at that later. But the point now is, some people just don't want to do it. They just don't. I'm on my own moral agency, and this uh, view is pretty much propounded by Nietzsche. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I am the source of my morality. I am the overman. I am not responsible to any moral agency outside of myself. The good is within me, and I am the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the idea. Than that, um, you know, what does not kill me makes me stronger, etc. Mm-hmm. The The whole idea of that kind of the Nietzschean overman view. Now, you can say, How well, that who really believes Nietzsche? that? Yeah, that didn't work so yeah. well for Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work then, for I mean, Nietzsche. Yeah, he had some yeah, he, problems he, there at he, the end of his life. Yeah, yeah, it went crazy in this in the, right. lo- in the insane asylum, man. It was right. pretty. PRETTY uh, unimaginable. BUT NEVERTHELESS, I MEAN, that is A LOT OF PEOPLE SAY, I, I'M NOT GOING TO BE RESPONSIBLE. YOU KNOW, I'll, I'LL THINK OF WHAT MORALITY IS AND I'LL DO WHAT I WANT TO DO. Uh, I DON'T NEED TO TURN TO A SOURCE OUTSIDE OF MYSELF FOR THE GOOD, mm-hmm. be, YOU KNOW, MY THOUGHT, YOU KNOW, WHEN I WAS EVEN A YOUNG STUDENT IN COLLEGE AND I HEARD THIS ARGUMENT, I WENT, WOW, THEY'RE INCAPABLE OF RATIONALIZATION? I'M NOT. Uh, YOU KNOW, I RATIONALIZE EVERY FIVE SECONDS. YOU KNOW, that, that, THAT'S NOT THE PHILOSOPHY FOR ME. I'M NO OVERMAN. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'LL TAKE the, A SOURCE OF THE GOOD OUTSIDE OF MYSELF THAT'S BEYOND, YOU KNOW, MY CAPACITY TO RATIONALIZE IT OFF, WHICH, OF COURSE, I WILL DO. I, right. I KNOW MYSELF uh, ONLY TOO WELL. SO, so THAT'S a, a THIRD AREA. BUT I THINK THAT THE BASIC THING TO GET, YOU KNOW, AND WHEN PEOPLE SAY THAT, JUST SAY, WOW, you're incapable of rationalization? That's a really uh, strange and interesting thing. You know, I, I, I don't find myself incapable of that. And that may bring the hypocritical aspect of that uh, viewpoint mm-hmm. of I don't need any moral agency. I don't need any source of the good beyond me. I, I'm the good all by myself. I can make the determination. Right. I am God unto myself. Okay. So that's the kind of the Nietzschean argument. Maybe your daughter is there, but the main thing, if that's her uh, viewpoint, I would probably just say something along the lines of, um, you know, to her. You know, just consider whether or not you have uh, capacity for rationalization. If you do, mm-hmm. maybe your belief is a bit right. hypocritical. The fourth kind of atheism also may apply to your daughter. And that is, I'm just plain angry about something that happened in my life. It may not have been necessarily uh, something that, like, is a suffering, like a, a physical uh, a difficulty or challenge, a mental or psychological difficulty or challenge. I'm just ticked off at somebody or some uh, uh, something that I associate with religion. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm mad at my mother or mad at my father. And I say, "Aha! My father was Catholic, or my mother was Catholic, and now you know I, you know I'm, you know th- th- it was their faith." That did it, you know. That because of their faith, you know their hypocrisy, and so forth and so on. They were the ones that caused such misery in my life, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, like a *Brideshead Revisited* deal, right. you know, uh, old Sebastian uh, there, you know, uh, and his kind of tussle with his mother and her Catholicism, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, the the, the point though is there's something about that association you know you know religion has caused uh, this person to do something destructive in my life or to say something destructive or to cause this resentment that's the toughest kind of thing to to get over and so you know just Hmm. in response to the viewers question i don't know what to tell you um you know because really THE ONLY SOLUTION TO THIS IS FORGIVENESS. I'M TELLING YOU RIGHT NOW, SHE'S JUST GOING TO HAVE TO FORGIVE THAT PERSON FROM THE HEART. Mm -hmm. Uh, YOU KNOW, IT'S NOT NECESSARILY YOU, THE MOM, RIGHT? right? Uh, YOU KNOW, IT'S JUST WHOEVER IT IS THAT'S CAUSING THIS TERRIBLE RESENTMENT THAT SHE'S GOT SOME KIND OF um, RELIGIOUS ASSOCIATION WITH. SHE'S JUST GOING TO HAVE TO FORGIVE. YOU KNOW, EVERYBODY IS, YOU KNOW, CAPABLE OF MAKING A MISTAKE. And if we don't have some forgiveness in this world and if we're going to keep our resentments, you know, to the bitter end, sh- your daughter's right. right. <laughs> yeah, those resentments will be the front door to hell. You know, you got to forgive people well, for, right, and you're right. going to have and to be able to forgive yourself. From a practical yourself. perspective, the
0: person who you're holding a grudge against is perfectly fine. They're not probably yeah. even thinking about you. They don't even remember yeah. the particular incident that you are yeah. allowing your life
1: to be crippled by. Uh, uh, absolutely you're right on the marker and so at some point you have to let go into God's hands and I've got the perfect prayer because I've used it many times it's uh, you know Lord you're the just judge you take care of it that's what I say to him I just you know I, I just at some point where you're so ticked off and you're letting you know the whole world spin around this Uh, incident of resentment just say give it to God give that person to God just say Lord you're the just judge Uh, I give it to you you take care of it I'm tired of letting this thing dominate my life and I'm tired of blaming you for what that person did simply because that person happened to be religious you know I'm just sorry I'm gonna stop this hypocrisy right now And I'm just going to give that person to you, and I'm going to relate to you independently of what my resentments might be.
0: Very good. Let's get to another question quick. Uh, Sure. Sorry. Dear (laughs) Dear Father Spitzer, we love your show. At what age did Jesus comprehend his divinity? Recently at Mass, the priest seemed to imply that Christ didn't understand who is about being divine until his own baptism. Of course, we just passed the baptism of the Lord recently. I don't think I agree. When did Jesus come to understand that he is the Son of God, Martin?
1: Yeah, well, I would say there's three different components that would lead me to believe that he was a very young child. I mean, you know, less than four years old. Of course, obviously, he had to have some rational capacity to grasp Uh, what that statement meant both uh, uh, intellectually as well as intuitively but I would say it was a very, very young child and I think there's three reasons for it. Number one, because um Uh, he uh, obviously will feel something, right? Children have genuine religious experiences. I had genuine religious experiences. I had a sense of God's presence in my life and a sense of evil in my life. Now imagine that you have the divine personhood within you. Imagine, even though you're in a child's brain and a child's uh, soul and so forth and so on, and you don't have the life experience and you're true God and true man, even despite the true man aspect of it, of a child, you're going to have a sense. You know, if I, Bob Spitzer, can feel the presence of God and the presence of evil, even though I might portray that as a boogeyman or something, right? The The idea is if I can feel that as a child, It's not just going to be a squaring, in Jesus' case, or a cubing, right? We're talking about, you know, a, a couple of exponential orders. You know, he's going to feel the same presence of God you know, a lot, lot, lot more. 100 times more, I don't know, but a lot more. And he's going to feel the presence of evil a lot, 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 lot more. I mean, he's going to have a childhood very different from my uh, uh, childhood. I mean, it's going to be filled with this sensibility. Number two, what does a child do when he is filled with that sensibility? He goes to his mother for part of the answer and to his father for the answer other part of the answer now his mother and his father know his origins for Mm -hmm. sure i believe that you know i don't believe that this is something that that mary vaguely intuited etc i believe uh, that she knew very explicitly what was going on the virginal conception is absolutely true i don't have a single doubt about this in my mind Mm -hmm. now if that's the case mary and joseph are going to tell him straight they're going to be able to tell him why he has such an extraordinary appreciation of these things. Mm -hmm. The third thing that is uh, obvious is Jesus already has the power of God residing within him, not just in the sense of spiritual inspiration, right? Jesus did not receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. He had the Holy Spirit the whole time. Mm -hmm. Of course, his. Holy Spirit is manifest in the baptism, like a dove coming down and being part of him. But of course, the Spirit has been there all along, mm-hmm. and that Spirit is inspiring him in the temple when he's talking with, you know, with the priests and so forth and so on, um, and the religious authorities there and so forth. So the the idea is, it's not just inspiration. But Jesus already knows that he has a sense of knowledge, he has a sense of divine power. There's something going on in him that Mm -hmm. is beyond the norm. And who's he going to ask about it? His mom and his dad, who know the origins of this, so in my view... I think it is very clear that as a very, very young child, at the very moment when Jesus had some rational, self-reflective capability, maybe even at the, you know, you know less than two years old, mm-hmm. there's already some kind of an awareness. Of this cosmic struggle between good and evil, that he is in the center of God's divine presence, the fatherhood of God to him, the exclusive nature of his sonship uh, beyond his uh, uh, being the son mm-hmm. of Joseph, etc. I think he has a very profound sense of this, even as a little child. And as rational self-consciousness increases, he grasps wow. it more and more. I mean, you know, let's uh, just the other day, we're t- you know, Jesus a- asks for the scroll of Isaiah in the temple. What does he do? He opens up the scroll to the exact passage that he wants. Are you kidding me? He didn't do this by accident. What's he been doing? He's been studying scrolls. That's what's going on. And as he's been studying those scrolls, he's got a source. And he's not doing it under a rabbinical teacher. He's doing it on his own. And he's so, so he's very familiar. He's trying to you know, get the entire interpretation set before he goes out on his mission, his baptism. But oh no, he knows his uh, divine sonship. Uh, he knows it very well way, way, way before right. uh, the baptism. Of course, his articulation of it, uh, you know, increases with his right. learning and capacity for rationalization. Okay, let's try and uh, squeeze his this uh,
0: last question okay. in as a bridge to the book. And okay. uh, this is, uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I'm having difficulty understanding the doctrine of original sin. I believe that all people are redeemed of their sins through death and resurrection of Jesus. However, it is hard for me to wrap my head around the eye there that because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the rest of humanity inherits their sin, why should we have to pay for their mistake? Knowing that we'll have trials and tribulations in this world, why couldn't God at least start each human life with a clean slate? Daniel.
1: Well, first of all, Danny, I, I don't think uh, people... I, I, it's true in Calvinism, um, you know, people... Uh, you know, Calvin believed that people fall all the way, right? So uh, you're you're kind of naturally... Uh, inclined toward evil, uh, you know, as a stronger influence than good. Catholics do not believe that. Uh, I always uh, describe it in the words of Father Steckler, uh, my old uh, mentor there, Uh, human beings are at least 51 percent good and inclined toward, 51 percent inclined toward the good. Mm -hmm. So we didn't fall all the way, but we did fall. And the idea of the fall is not like we're being blamed original sin is not saying we're being blamed for the sin of Adam. But let's face it, when Adam and Eve, right, they had a very, very close connection, uh, a sensibility of God, a, a an, 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 uh, an intuition, an app, uh, appropriation, appreciation of God's presence that was almost direct and unmitigated, uh, you know, before the fall. It wasn't a 100% perfect because of course God makes them susceptible to temptation. He gives them free choice. So they do have this very unmediated and direct contact with God. But it is not perfect such that it would eradicate their freedom, their free choice. So what happens? The, the old devil comes in on uh, the deal, of course, portrayed as the serpent there in the Adam mm-hmm. and Eve story. And what's his thing is, hey, you can become like God. Of course, it's the perfect first sin. You know, God's withheld from you. You know, if you eat from that tree, God knows that you've become just like Him, and He didn't want that. He wants you to be in your place, but you deserve it. You're you. You're just so (laughs) deserving of divinity. You don't have to worship uh, there. You can be like God unto yourself. And so, of course, we know the rest of the story. Now, once the fall happens... What is lost is that almost direct apperception of the divine love and presence and goodness. It gets very clouded over. Let's call that concupiscence for just a moment. Let's just sort of say that we've got to now, we, we see through uh, you know a glass darkly, mm-hmm. right? In other words, we don't have that direct vision anymore. We oftentimes wonder, "Oh, well, is God out there? And, and we kind of have to uh, question this or sometimes we feel so vulnerable to sin, right? So a temptation comes along and we're kind of riveted to it before we even know what's happening. But of course, we're still free. We're not forced into, you know, what I would call a into a sinful condition, as Calvin believed that, you know, it's all over. The temptation comes and you're kind of the helpless babe. But instead, you've got this free choice and you can uh, basically resist it, but right. it sometimes it's you feel so weak. You feel like, gosh, you know, Lord, why'd you make me so weak? There concupiscence, original sin, vulnerability. You do not have the direct apperception of God's presence. You don't have the direct apperception of His goodness and and love. You don't have the the direct apperception of His lovability and beauty and majesty and awe. But you can have it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see better, sometimes more like a glass darkly. But the point at the end of the day is you have to, in some way, use your baptismal gifts and cultivate those baptismal gifts to get back to where you were. But the first stage is baptism. Why? The Holy Spirit gives you inspiration and that is a turning gift. Right. I know that in my own life. When I you know, <clears throat> you know was baptized, of course, as an infant, mm-hmm. when I was a child I had not just genuine religious experiences, I had a sense of real theological knowledge that was way beyond my years. Mm -hmm. I had an intuition about what God might be like or what God might be thinking. Yes, sometimes I was completely errant, but sometimes, as you know, my parents would say, spot on. I mean, people would, you know, I'd walk around the school and people would say, oh, ask Spitzer about religious questions or something. But kids get it. But that's the first step. But then you've got to keep cooperating with that grace of baptism, that spirit that's right. within your heart. And as you do that, more and more and more, you build yourself back up with the grace of God, with Holy Communion, with frequent confessions. You're building yourself back up to where all of a sudden that concupiscence, that original sin, that defect of not having that direct apperception of God's goodness and love... That starts getting built up and all of a sudden the glass darkly seems to uh, get brighter and brighter. The mm-hmm. darkness seems to dissipate and go away uh, as you cooperate with them. And as that occurs, it becomes easier and easier to do the right thing for the right reason. Easier and easier to resist temptations as they come up. Easier and easier to practice virtue okay. for virtue's sake for the sake of God himself, who we love with an ever-increasing purity of heart. And so that's the reason for it. I mean, we're not being blamed. We're just inheriting a condition that was created uh, by the fall itself. So in your your book,
0: uh, jumping to 176, you talk about the fact that uh, the price of love is the possibility of doing evil. So it kind of dovetails into what you were just talking about. And the other thing Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about, which kind of jumped out me in this this section uh, Mm -hmm. of the book, was the idea about curses. You said, it's important to note here that possession that comes from being cursed does not result in sin. Uh, Cursing cannot affect the soul or the salvation of another any more than a whip or an instrument of torture.
1: So, I mean, can somebody actually be cursed? Well, you know... um uh, I think to a limited extent yeah that is certainly possible at least many uh, uh, exorcists actually say that it's possible hmm. but I believe that even if you are uh, you know cursed and you know you can see sometimes that you know a person uh, for example a little child might be dedicated to it to to evil I know that sounds horrible uh, almost like a reverse baptism uh, and they are uh, almost dedicated to Satan Um, AND SOMETIMES THAT DOES CAUSE um, SOME REALLY TERRIBLE uh, EFFECTS IN A PERSON'S LIFE THAT WERE CERTAINLY NOT CHOSEN BY THAT POOR LITTLE CHILD. BUT THE RECTIFICATION uh, OF THAT, BECAUSE THE CHILD, RIGHT? THE the DEVIL CAN'T GET INTO THAT CHILD'S SOUL. SO YOU CAN ALWAYS APPEAL TO THAT CHILD TO CONVERT to, uh, TO JESUS CHRIST. YOU CAN ALWAYS APPEAL TO THAT CHILD to say, hey, you know, read the, these teachings of Jesus Christ, and and uh, or maybe uh, you know, uh, you know, um, take a look at what the church says here about this this fellow Jesus Christ. Uh, do you think that this is right? Do you think that love, uh, you know, this charity, this caritas, uh, of self-gift and, and 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 goodness and generosity? Do you think that these beatitudes? Do you think that that kind of represents the meaning of life, the destiny of, of eternal love that that would really be Now, of course, that's a little high-minded for a little child, but you could actually appeal, you know, in child language. Uh, to the child. And of course, if you do, and the child begins to accept it, and then the child says, you know, I would like to be baptized. Who that baptism will ob- obviously reverse effects of that mm-hmm. curse in uh, no time flat. So, you know, if if something like that happened. Now, do I think that this is a, a frequent occurrence? No, I really don't. But yes, I, I have seen and heard of um, yeah, curses that have been right. done or children that have been dedicated uh, to Satan. And I do know that there are some uh, effects of this. But, of course, God would never hold, uh, you know, any child, uh, you know, uh, you know, liable to, to, you know, for something that they never chose. Right, I mean, it's do, the right. worst kind of thing uh, in the world that these parents or these you know, these knuckleheads have done to this poor child. So the first thing is, you know, get that child just to listen to you about Jesus and religion. And, you know, that child will listen just as intently as any other child, cursed or uncursed. And if they accept them and you baptize them and you get them on the road, I'm telling you that that curse will have no more influence uh, than anybody who tries to curse you just... Uh, all you have to do right back is just in the name of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. be gone Satan, and uh, you know you just reverse the the effects of that curse instantly. Right. The name of Jesus and belief in Jesus, and of course the sacraments of reconciliation, the Holy Eucharist, baptism. If you do that, y- you are protected. So uh, you know, obviously, you know, and you're protected through your freedom, through your acceptance of of the goodness of of the Lord's teaching and the goodness of his person uh, in your life one of the points you make at the
0: bottom of page 176 is that god protects the victims of pro- possession and oppression from memories of the torments that they had and their
1: families had mm-hmm. to endure yep that's very true in the case of robbie Mannheim, he really didn't remember what had happened to him mm-hmm. uh, once the uh the um the whole uh, exorcism was finished, well, there were 39 of them, Mm -hmm. Uh, but once they were uh, completed and the uh, evil spirit was expelled, uh, Robbie really didn't remember all the horrible things he'd said and done. He he had no no idea, Uh, none whatsoever. He was just like an innocent child, went on and, uh, you know, became, uh, I think he went on in some kind of technical career, Uh, you know, lived in Maryland, and uh, um, that was that. So, you know, he just kind of had a normal life uh, uh, after the the entire incident. But he was still free.
0: Right. Now, you make the point here, if a person opens himself to evil or even Satan in order to curse another, he is responsible for the evil done to himself and the other.
1: That's right. Not only that, but he uh, he opens himself uh, to being accursed. So I always say the minute you level a curse at somebody by using, uh, you know, an evil spirit or trying to, uh, you know, um, hurl a specific curse through incantation with an evil spirit toward another person. You're the first one to be accursed. You're the first one uh, who is going to get the effects of that because you just opened yourself up to possession by the very spirit you used to curse the other. Right. Uh, so, boy, I talk about the old saying, "What goes around comes around." <laughs> it's very true with cursing. And, um, and not only that, but, of course, God holds you responsible um, for what you have done to that other person.
0: Right, and you say here, in as much as exorcists use the will of a victim to help break the spell of the evil spirit, an innocent mm-hmm. victim will cooperate with the exorcist completely, while one who has cooperated with evil will have a mixed state of consciousness.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, um, in, in you know, in the particular case of... Uh, Uh, um, of this, Julia, that um, Dr. Richard Gallagher uh, relates that case uh, in his book, Demonic Foes, and also in a New Oxford Review article, Um, but anyway, in that particular case, she was a satanic uh, priestess, and she did cooperate very much with evil, and she wasn't an innocent, uh, when she was walking through the doors there. Um, and uh, Robbie, of course, was much more innocent than she because Robbie, uh, you know, he was playing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with the Ouija board in order to, you know, uh, make contact with his aunt, but it was much more innocent than right. Julia, who actually, uh, I guess at some point, was providing children for, uh, you know, terrible ceremonies and things. Um, you know uh, and it was uh, a high priestess she was not innocent and at the end of the day she didn't go through uh, with the exorcism right and she she just did not you know she had cooperated so long uh, with evil that she had mixed feelings as you uh, as uh, I, I put it in the book right and the um the mixed feelings of course prevented her in the end uh, from per- she wanted the exorcism part of her wanted it part right. of her didn't and finally, at the end of the day, she just right. uh, gave it in and just said, well, I, I, you know, I belong to this Right, the impact of that
0: mixed state, probably. Mm-hmm. Yep, so, that's right. So with that being said, if you'd uh, close us out for
1: this uh, edition, Father, uh, with your blessing. Uh, absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, the Almighty, through His Holy Spirit, continue to inspire you with wisdom and love and to know above all, in the hope that there is for life, the hope that there is for the victory of good over evil, the hope that there is for the victory of love and charity over hatred and domination. So that in this hope and in this belief in Christ Jesus our Lord, you can bring not only to yourself, but to the world the peace of Christ and the vision of holiness that will save us through His grace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Stay well. We shall see
0: you next week, and we hope to see you as well next week. Don't forget, Father Spitzer's books and videos available through our catalog. Next week's show: What are the causes of possession, and was why does God allow? It? We'll finish that off and move ahead. And of course, uh, we've got an EW10 bookmark: the complementarity of women and men. A very good book edited by. Dr. Paul Vitz. A wonderful, wonderful interview. Look for the International Mass on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, live from Lourdes, France, Friday, February 11th at 4 a.m. Eastern, but we'll replace it for everybody to see it. Replay it at 12 noon Eastern time. I'm Doug Heck. Thank you for joining us. We shall see you next time when we again venture into Father Spitzer's universe. Be well.